0: So the last few weeks, really this whole semester, we've been going through the book of Isaiah and as we have done so, we've tried to take chunks of scripture and see what God has to say to us and we've seen different elements of God and we've focused on who God is and his trustworthiness and his judgment and his holiness and all of these things throughout the book of Isaiah and tonight we're going to focus on Isaiah chapters 40 to 43 and as we get ready to, to focus on that passage, I actually want us to start with a question. And this may seem like a funny question for a church group, but I hope once, uh, once we have some discussion, you'll see where I'm going with it. Uh, A.W. Tozer says that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I want to have a, have, a, uh, have a second where we reflect on that. What do you actually think about God? Or more specifically, what do you think God is really like? If you could describe him in two to three words... What do you think god is actually like i want you to talk about that at your tables what is god like in two to three words and then we're going to share some answers and then dive into our passage what is god really like in two to three words talk at your tables all right let's bring them back in so if you were to describe god in two to three words what would you say raise your hand give us your name shout out your answer what is god like in two to three words so Noah says, God is faithful and he's on mission. That's good. What else? How else would you describe God? Grand and majestic. He's a big God. I like that. What else? Maybe one or two more answers. So Wyatt says he's mighty, not he as in Wyatt, but God is mighty and all-knowing. Um, <laughs> and maybe one more answer. Yeah, so Nick says God is holy and just. Now. In a church group like this, where hopefully many of you have grown up in good uh, preaching traditions, teaching traditions, um, you may have a, a good and solid and loving view of God. Now, if I were to pose this question differently and say, "What does the average person on the street think of God? How would they describe him in two or three words? Or maybe maybe if I brought it press a little more and I said, if you were being totally honest. Not just because you knew you might have to give an answer out loud, but if you're being honest in your heart of hearts, how would you describe God in your life at this moment? The answers might be a little bit different. And I have a feeling that if we were to take a poll of the average person on the street, uh, what they think of God in two to three words, there'd be kind of two primary camps of answers. One, I think one group would say that God is scary. And wrathful. And they have this image of God that He is just like a spider on a thread, just dangling them over the, the fires of hell. And He's this God of wrath and judgment. Maybe they grew up in a really fundamentalist background where all they knew was fire and brimstone, and they knew nothing of the love of God. And maybe if you're honest, there's some of you here that kind of feel like that tonight. If you're honest, your view of God is that He is wrathful and vengeful, um, maybe even hateful. Judgmental. And you would probably say that you have a big view of God, but that God doesn't feel very close. Like you want some distance there because you're not sure what he's going to do. You fear God, but there's no fear of love in there. It's just this fear of judgment. I think a lot of people view God that way. Now, I think there's another camp of people that if you said, how would you describe God in two or three words? They would say God is a God of love. Now, on first mention, that sounds good. Now, and theologically, there's something true about that. The Bible literally says, God is love. But I think if you were to ask them to like, show us your work, you know, think of a math problem, you know, it's not just the right answer that matters, it's your work that matters. How'd you get there? I think their work would be all wrong. And this may be the case for some of us here tonight. You know God is a God of love, but what you mean by that theologically makes no sense in scripture. Because you think of God as uh, affirming every action, whether it's sinful or not. And really, if you're honest, God does not hate sin. You don't have a category for that. If you're honest, God is just a, a spiritual lapdog for you. You just grab him when you've had a bad day. You, know, you, you hold him for a little bit. You pet him. You get comfort. And then you throw him back away and you move on with your life. And then the next time you have a bad day, you come over. You, you pet him. You comfort him. You know, I, we just... As a staff had its National Puppy Day, I guess, and so we brought in our dogs. And Nala was here today, and she just got passed person to person, and you know they would just hold her, and you could watch kind of the anxiety kind of melt for a little bit as they held her. And uh, for her, that's exhausting. She just went home and napped after being petted so much, you know. But for some of us, we treat God like that. We say God is a God of love, and we have this close view of God, but we have no category for a big God that hates sin, that is holy and just. And righteous and if we were to show our work it would be all wrong and ironically I would argue that if you don't have a category for holiness and a hatred of sin in God a category of justice ironically you have a very unloving God no matter how affirming that God may sound because someone that does not uphold justice that does not bring punishment to sin is not actually loving One of the most unjust things you can do is not bring about justice. One of the most unloving things you can do is not bring about justice. And intuitively, we all get this. A parent punishes their child not because they hate them, but a good parent punishes their child because they want their child to be raised in the right way and to love what is good and right. And it's a loving thing to punish wrongdoing because they know the the end they have in mind. Or maybe just at a different level. Imagine there's a court case where uh, a man has brutally beaten and sexually abused a young child. And we get to the court case, the court day, and the judge looks down at everyone here. We're all there in the seats. And he says, You know what? I think we just all need to be a little bit more loving and affirming and gracious. And so we're going to let this guy go. No punishment we would all intuitively understand that justice has not be done, what we would cry out for justice to be done because how unloving it is it if someone has the power to stop hurt and sin and they don't do anything with it? And if God is the just judge of the earth, he must have judgment against sin. He's actually loving to do that. And so there are people that say God is a God of love And yet their understanding of God as love is actually very unloving. We struggle to have a big view of God and a close view of God at the same time. We struggle to view God as loving and beautiful and gracious and tender while also being holy and mighty and majestic. And one of the most beautiful parts about the book of Isaiah is that we get to see both of those things. We get to see this holistic view of God where we see his holiness... We see his justice and yet we also see his nearness and his love and his comfort. And tonight we are going to be talking about the comfort of God. If you've been with us for a number of weeks, you will know we've had some passages where we've centered more on the judgment of God and the holiness of God. And tonight it's going to have a different feel because we're gonna talk about the comfort of God. But the reason I give the preface that I do is I don't want you to have a bastardized version of what i mean by the comfort of god this is not your spiritual lapdog this is the god of the universe like eli said grand and majestic this is not some little thing that we just put in a box to make us feel better and when you have that understanding of god that this understanding of god that he is grand and majestic it changes how you understand his comfort second corinthians 1 tells us god is the god of all comfort He loves to comfort us and to be tender to his people. And only a God that is big and majestic, but is also close, can actually comfort his people. And we are going to see that in Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, your scripture notebooks, turn or tap with me to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to really just primarily read the first two verses, and then we are going to kind of touch on various verses from about three chapters, Isaiah 40 to 43 looking at this idea of the comfort of God. And as you turn there, I wanna go ahead and set the scene for you. Because remember last week we talked about Isaiah 36 and 37, and in between 36 and 37 and chapter 40, you have some important pieces of the story of God's people. And so in between those things, we see this fateful moment for God's people and for Hezekiah, King Hezekiah in chapter 39. Here, the nation of Judah has been facing the impending oppression of the great Assyrian empire. And if you remember from last week, Hezekiah trusts in God and says, God, I don't know how we're going to defeat them. I don't know how we're going to make it, but God, I'm trusting in you for our salvation and our safety. But what we're going to find now is that no longer is Assyria the main threat. It's been the main threat for a long time, but no longer is it the main threat now you will see if you were to read through chapters 38 and 39 the nation of babylon is the main threat and what's interesting is there's this moment in chapter 39 where you know hezekiah is trying to trust in god he knows a is coming but he says okay i'm going to trust in you lord and then the king of babylon sends his royal representatives to hezekiah and they talk up the king of babylon and how great and strong he is and then they just shower hezekiah with praises And it's just like he's being wooed by them. And instead of just meeting with them and leaving, like out in the field, like we saw from the representatives of Assyria last week, this time uh, Hezekiah takes the representatives of Babylon into his royal palace and he shows them all of his treasure, all of his possessions. And it's such a foolish and a stupid move. I mean, it, it would be like having robbers, uh, welcoming robbers in your house right before you go on vacation and showing them all your most expensive stuff. That's, that, that's what Hezekiah has done here. And rather than trusting in God, he's enjoying kind of the pride that's welling up from the nice words of the Babylonian folks, and he's kind of leaning into what they're saying. And so Isaiah, rightly concerned, tells Hezekiah bad things are coming and God is going to bring judgment for this. And he, and he shares with Hezekiah that not in your generation, but in your son's generation, they will experience captivity. And sure enough, the nation of Judah is taken over by Babylon and they go into captivity. And no longer does Judah rule itself. It's just a major occurrence in scripture. And yet, and yet with that context in mind, in the wake of judgment and after that fateful moment, We go right into Isaiah chapter 40. And so turn with me there. This is what God says to his people in the wake of this moment. As as the looming captivity of Babylon is coming, he says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God is both just and he's bringing about punishment for this lack of trust. And yet he's saying, I'm not going to abandon you. And he's saying, as this impending captivity comes, as the nation and the empire of Babylon is going to take you over. I'm going to leave you with words of comfort because I'm not done with you yet, because I love you. And so in this impending captivity and judgment, God says to his people, comfort and comfort. He wants to speak tenderly to them. And I think that is such a beautiful picture for what we face in our everyday lives. That we remember that there are consequences for our actions and yet our God is with us and he's for us and he loves us and he actually comforts us in the storms that come in life. And so really what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna focus on the four ways that God comforts his people. He comforts his people by his strength, by his word, by his presence, and by his salvation. And so all we're going to do is we're just going to break down those categories, see how Isaiah 40 to 43 talks about them, and reflect on them together. So God's strength, his word, his presence, and his salvation. And let's start with God's strength. We see in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 to 11, it says this, Zion Herald of good news, go up on a high mountain, Jerusalem. Herald of good news, raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, and then notice their message. Here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and His power establishes His rule. His wages are with Him, and His reward accompanies Him. And He protects His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms and carries them in the fold of His garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. So the first way God brings about comfort to His people is by His strength. And what does God do with His strength? He protects His people, and He gently cares for them. Our God is a strong God and nothing can defeat him. Part of the comfort of God is his bigness, his grandeur, his power, and his glory. It means that our God is bigger and better than anything else in the universe. He's greater than any other idol that we might try to find comfort in. Remember what we talked about last week. The idols that are competing for our attention and our trust. The things that we go to when we are trying to have satisfaction and joy that are other than God. God is bigger than all of those things, and God hammers this point home through Isaiah chapter 40, and I want to read verses 18 to 28 of chapter 40, and as we read through that passage, I want you to notice the bigness and the strength of God that is being portrayed here. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 18, says this, with whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a, a smelter casts and a metalworker with plates of gold and makes silver chains for. A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that, that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground. When he blows on them, they wither, and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal? Ask the Holy One. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the stars by number, and he calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Jacob, why do you say, and Israel, why do you assert, my way is hidden from the Lord, my claim is ignored by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? heard? The Lord is everlasting, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. We serve a big and majestic God. This is not some spiritual lapdog that we just pull out for our own enjoyment and comfort. This is the God of the universe, bigger and better than we could ever possibly imagine. And you can only have true comfort when your God is that big and that grand. Our God is bigger than anything we might face. He is bigger than our anxiety over job loss, our depression, our sorrow over relationships that haven't come to fruition our struggle with pornography or food, our wrestling with gossip and pride, our struggle to trust others, our past hurt and abuse, our questions and our doubts, and so much more. God is bigger and better and stronger than all of those things. So I don't know where you're at tonight, but if you're, if you're in a place where there is something that has got you down, it has got you anxious, it's got you fearful, God is bigger than whatever that thing is. In his strength, God can even do the impossible. Think about that. In his strength, part of the way God comforts us is that he can even do the impossible to bring about comfort to us. And he can answer our prayers in ways that we might never expect. So it's not just that we may have some tragedy or some hardship or something that's bringing about anxiety and that, that, that we need a big God. It's that God may answer our prayers about those things in ways we could never anticipate. Isaiah 41, 17 and 18 says this, the poor and the needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. And then catch this, I will answer them. I am the Lord, the God of Israel. I will not abandon them. I will open rivers on the barren heights and springs in the middle of the plains. And I will turn the desert into a pool and the dry land into springs. Think about that. God is saying, I will make the most, most parched and dry and desolate place on the earth into a, a spring, a river, a pool, a lake. He's doing the impossible. The only way you get to have true and lasting comfort is if you have a God that can do the impossible. And I would just encourage you If your prayer life is to only pray for things that seem to make sense in your own mind without saying, God, I need you to show up in a way I can never imagine, I would actually argue that your God is too small. We can pray for things from God that are greater than we could ever imagine. Doesn't mean he's going to answer our prayers in the way that we want him to, but it means he will end up answering our prayers oftentimes in ways that we never possibly could have imagined. And before you, know, you start imagining some, some bizarre and crazy stories, which God can do, let me just give you a really simple example from my college days that I saw God's power in an unexpected way in the life of one of my roommates. So I had three of the roommates. We lived in this condo together. And uh, one of the young men that, that lived with us uh, was struggling with pornography. And he had an addiction. He was trying to fight. And, he, and he'd take a step forward and then he'd take two steps back. And then he'd take a couple steps forward and then a step back. And he'd just wrestle with it and wrestle with it and wrestle with it. And the time he struggled most was when he thought no one else was around at the condo, which wasn't that often. But there was this small window in between classes where no one else was there. And so that's often when he fell into temptation. And so there's this one day where he's just feeling temptation like no other. He's sitting in class, he can't stand it. And so he gets home. Um, and he just rushes upstairs, and he gets ready to log on to his preferred website. And he goes to log on, hits submit on, the, on, on uh, incognito mode, and all of a sudden, internet's not working. And he's kind of frustrated and anxious, and he tries again, internet's not working. Internet's not working, he tries again, internet, and he goes over and over and over, he's getting really frustrated. And finally, he hears a noise downstairs, and he comes down, and he realizes that the rest of the roommates, the rest of us are there, but we had just come in. And, you know, I don't know if he had a class canceled or what the deal was, but we came in unexpectedly. And he, he sees that one of us is on a laptop. And he's like, hey, is the Internet working for you? And we can just tell he's kind of frazzled and we don't know why. And we're like, yeah, the Internet's working just fine. And he goes back upstairs and he apparently tries another couple times. The Internet's not working. He comes back down. We're all on our laptops doing homework. And he's like, is the Internet working for you guys? i like, yeah, it's working just fine. And I, I have no way to prove this, but I believe that God, in just what feels like a small and subtle way, was protecting him from sin in that moment. Now, I don't know about you, but my first thought is not to pray, God, would you keep the internet from working for me and not my roommates? I mean, I'm not that considerate in my prayers. But in that case, I think God showed up in a way that we never would have expected. And it was a blessing to him. And it was this breaking point for him we realized, man, if God is trying to stop me here, why would I continue to persist in sin? So I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but we should feel the comfort of our God and know that he is bigger than anything we could face and we should feel the ability to be able to pray for things that are beyond our wildest imagination. But what's more is not just that God's strength cannot be defeated and it's not just that God is strong in his power in defeating our enemies. God also shows us his strength when he strengthens us. So again, it's not that just that God is strong in himself in defeating our enemies. He shows us his strength and his comfort by strengthening us when we are weak. Catch this in Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. God strengthens us with his own strength. And just a quick note on this. Kind of a, a side point if you remember last week i talked about how the details in scripture matter and we talked about how that that special field that 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 upper pool in the launders field and how that was so significant earlier in isaiah well i want to show you another detail that matters notice in isaiah forty-one ten, god says that he will hold on to us with his righteous right hand in the bible the right hand is is a symbol of god's strength and his power and so part of what God is saying here is that he will hold on to us and nothing can take us away from him. Jesus makes this same point in John chapter 6. But notice what God says in Isaiah forty-one thirteen. just a few verses later. He says, for I am the Lord your God who holds your right hand and who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. God is not only holding on to you with his right hand so that nothing could take us away from him, but he's also telling us that he will hold our right hand. Now, I don't want you to spend too much time thinking about how how that works. That's not the point of the illustration. What is God getting at? Why is it important that he would hold our right hand? Because God is saying that since our right hand of power is being held on to him, it's a clear picture that we are doing nothing in our own strength. Our right hand of power, our ability is occupied. It is God's strength and God's alone that can cause us to endure. And if you're if you've been a Christian for very long, I, I would tell you: if you would take a look back at your spiritual journey, you would find all of the ways that God has sustained you and upheld you along the way. And this is an amazing point that God is making. That it is through his strength and his strength alone that we can endure. God strengthens us with his own strength. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 to 31, furthers this point when it says, God gives, us, gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on the wings like eagles and they will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. Again, if you've been a Christian for very long, I pray that you've experienced this to to be strengthened by god and your weakness is one of the sweetest feelings ever isaiah 42 3 tells us god will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick what's it saying it's saying that god will be with us in our weakness no matter how broken and bruised we feel so if you're if you're just coming into the night with a major limp and like you barely have the energy or the social capacity or just the emotional capacity to walk in the doors, but you said, I'm going to try tonight, God. God is here to strengthen you. It doesn't matter how weak you feel, God is here to offer you his strength and his comfort. I can't tell you how many times God has given me strength when I've been weak. Um, You've heard me reference this before, but a year ago, I came to the realization and saw signs of depression and trauma and burnout in my own life. And there were weeks where I could hardly get up here or on Sunday morning or somewhere else to preach or to answer a pastoral call or something like that. I just had no capacity to do it whatever, whatsoever. And yet God was faithful every single time. Every single time. And my prayer for you all is that you would experience that, of what is it like to have God strengthen you in your week. It is one more reminder of his comfort and that he is the one alone that is sustaining us. It's by his grace and his strength alone that we have endured. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a moment and I want us to talk about God's strength. How has God shown his power and his strength in your life? Has it been doing amazing deeds, kind of amazing stories, or has it been giving you strength in your weakness? So how has God shown his power and his strength in your life? Talk about that at your tables for a few minutes. We'll get some answers and then we will continue on. So I trust that a number of us have seen the power and strength of God in our lives and that it's been a comfort to us. Um, I mean, if we had time and we could, I could share stories about mission trips and just so many ways in which God has not only shown up in, you know, kind of amazing deeds, but also just in the small moments where he's giving comfort and, and helping me in my weakness. It's one of the most amazing ways that God comforts us is by his strength and his power. But next, we're gonna look at another way that God comforts us, and it's by his word. God comforts us by his word. Isaiah 40 verse eight tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Nothing is greater than God's word. Nations rise and fall, kings come up and then they die. Year after year goes by, generation after generation, and yet God's word endures forever in truth and power. And this means that God's promises endure too. So the amazing things you see, the amazing words of God you read in scripture, they endure forever. And the amazing thing about God's word is not just that it endures, but that it's backed up by God's strength. So the point we just talked about, God's strength is vital for this point because think about it. If a weak or unreliable person tells you something, you're not really gonna trust him. It doesn't hold much weight. But if the infinite, almighty, all-powerful, everlasting God of the universe tells you something, you can rely on that more than anything else. His promises are sure. And God doesn't just speak of his power in his word, he speaks words of comfort to us. You know, we've read lots of passages about the bigness of God and God declaring his greatness. But God also speaks sweet words of comfort to us. I mean, just think back on our main passage from tonight. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over and her iniquity has been pardoned. And she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is not only strong, but he's also tender. And he is the perfect father. And his words to us are far more tender and loving than we often realize. Take for example Zephaniah chapter three, verses fourteen to seventeen. And think about this. This is the God of the universe speaking things to you and to his people. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel, be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment, and he's turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord is among you. You need no longer fear harm. And on that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. And he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing." having someone sing over you words of love imagine like a father singing over his daughter his little daughter that's the kind of image we have here this beautiful image of God who is mighty and majestic yet he's so tender so comforting he is singing words of joy over his people if you don't have a category of God like that in your mind you don't have a complete view of God If you only view God as this God of judgment and wrath, you are missing out on one of the most beautiful parts of him, his tenderness and his love. The God of the universe, and this applies to girls as much as guys, because sometimes as guys, this can weird us out a little bit, this tender side, but he's saying this just the same to us. The God of the universe says tender and loving things to us in his word like that all the time. I think part of the reason we struggle to feel God's comfort is that we don't know his word well. The better we know God's word, the more we know of his comforts and his promises. I think for many of us, if we knew God's word better in hard moments, we could remember his promises and we could be refreshed of the ways that God will be there to strengthen us and love us. And what's more is not just that God's words of comfort aren't just general. You know, He doesn't just say these general things and we can apply them in vague vague ways. He also provides specific words of comfort to us in particular situations in life. Now, originally, I had tried to make a list of different examples, and it was way too long, and I already have too many notes. And so I just want to provide one single example of this, and I'll let you try to find them, uh, other examples in Scripture. A few years ago, a dear friend of mine lost her daughter to suicide just before Mother's Day. And in the wake of that, after daughter passed, but you know, on Mother's Day, I sent her and her husband a text that said this said, God God brought you to mind today as I was doing my quiet time, and I read a quote that made me think of you, and I wanted to share it with you, and I wanted to let you know I was praying for you. I know Mother's Day this year surely has given you mixed emotions. I know that you're celebrating the children you have, but I know you're also mourning your daughter. And in that light, one of my favorite theologians and pastors, Samuel Rutherford, has a word of encouragement that he originally wrote to a, a mother who also had lost her child. And catch what Rutherford says, talking about the specific words of comfort that God gives. He says this. All the comforts, promises, and mercies God offers to the afflicted, they are as so many love letters written to you. Take them to you, madam, and claim your right, and be not robbed. It is no small comfort that God has written some scripture to you, which he has not written to others. You seem rather in this to be envied rather than pitied. He has written comforts and his hearty commendations in the 54th chapter of Isaiah. And you see it in verses four and five. You see it in Psalm chapter 147, verse two and three. And he's written these to you. Read these and the like, and think your God is like a friend that sends a letter to the whole house of the family, but speaks in his letter to some by name that are dearest to him in the house. You then, madam, are of the dearest of friends of our God. And if it were lawful, I would envy you that God honored you above so many of his dear children. See what he's saying? I mean, imagine you get a letter from someone that you all love and know. And yet in that letter, that person, that family member is writing specifically to an individual. And that's like what's happening. There are, there are passages of scripture that God has written. From, he knew from all eternity past what you were going to go through. What his people in his word were going to go through and he knew that it would be a comfort to you if you would read it. Think about that. So when you're doing your quiet time and you come across a scripture that brings immense comforts to you and reminds you of God's bigness and his glory and his love, there's a sense in which God wrote that to you. And we can take comfort in God's word knowing that he has written it for us. And so here's what I want us to do as we close out that section. I want us to take a minute, we're not gonna talk at our tables, But I just want us, if you'll raise your hand, give us your name. I want you to shout out some of the Bible verses that bring the most comfort to you. So raise your hand uh, and give us your name and tell us, what are some of the Bible verses that bring the most comfort to you? For me, it would be Romans 8, 28 to 39. Some of you have heard me read that many times. But just for me, it is a comfort. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 reminds me of the bigness of God. Psalm 23, stereotypical, but man, it is a comfort to me. So what are some of the verses for you? Raise your hand. Give us your name. What are some of the Bible verses that bring comfort to you? Yeah, so Braden is saying 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's a beautiful one. What else? Yeah, Eli is saying Philippians 4.6. Mm, so Noah said Psalm 73. You said 26? Yep, that's a beautiful one. Give me one or two more. Other verses that are, are comfort to you. Other verses that are comfort to you. Yeah. Chris is saying Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. It's beautiful. Maybe one more. One more verse that is a comfort to you. Yeah. Yeah. So Ryan's saying Romans 8, 18. It's beautiful. Doubtless um, so we could go around and we could share verse after verse after verse that have been a comfort to us. Hold on to those. Memorize scripture. One of the best things you can ever do is memorize verses of the Bible so that in moments of uh, distress or pain or sorrow god's word can come to mind for you okay last two categories and these are these are a little shorter so the next one we've talked about god's comforting us in his strength in his word but he also comforts us in his presence isaiah forty one ten says do not fear for i am with you do not be afraid for i am your god i will strengthen you i will help you i will hold on to you with my righteous right hand sometime i've thought about this and and maybe it would be the right thing for us to do at some point i thought about going through the storyline of scripture by studying god's presence with his people and if you were to give a summary of that you would say in the beginning in the garden god walked and talked with his people it was this intimate and close presence and yet when humanity sinned it led to a separation with god and in our sin we couldn't be in his full presence in the same way as before and so again there was this separation between god and his people and the storyline of Scripture, then, is God doing what it takes to be able to fully be in the presence of His people again. And so, while God couldn't show the fullness of His glory to His people anymore because of their sin, you see in the Old Testament, He sought to be in their presence as much as possible in ways like the tabernacle. Think about it, it's this tent where God's, it's, it's kind of signifying God's presence with His people, and it travels with them through, throughout the way. And then He has the temple and the Holy of Holies, and it's representing God's presence with His people. But again, it's not a full presence. Not everyone could walk into the Holy of Holies in the same way. And then, in an unspeakable act of love and comfort, God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world to be with his people and to tear down the wall of division through his atoning death at the cross. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, he left his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to dwell with us Christians to give us comfort. And so that means if you were a Christian here tonight, God's own spirit is in you and is with you always. That's a comfort. And then finally, if you were to continue on that storyline, in glory, when all sad things come untrue and sin is fully banished from the world, we will dwell fully in the presence of God forever. Just a quick note about the details. And we'll talk about this more in our Revelation series in the fall. The only two cubic dimensions in all of Scripture are the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament and then the new heavens and new earth in glory. That's why the details matter. I know some of you, when you're in your Bible reading plan and you get to all the details about the building, you just roll through. And I trust they did a good job building that. Read the numbers. The only two cubic dimensions in all the Bible, the Holy of Holies. Remember, the intimate presence of God, it went from this small place to the whole world. Because God is going to dwell fully with all of his people forever. And Revelation 22, 1-5 describes this amazing happily ever after ending like this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit from each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And then catch this. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In glory, we will be fully in the presence of God forever, and it will be the ultimate comfort to us. It is what we were made for and in glory as we gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ and gaze upon his face, all of our anxiety and depression and sadness and sorrow and pain will melt away forever. And in this life we get to experience a foretaste of what that is like in God's comfort to us. Final section here. God's salvation final section so we've talked about God's comfort to us in his strength in his word and in his presence and if we were to summarize that as we get ready to look at God's salvation as a comfort to us we see this beautiful summary in Isaiah 43 verses 1 to 5 he says this to his people Think about the ways his, his strength and his word and his presence and even salvation to come all come up here. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior, and I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored. I love you. Do not fear, for I am with you. What an amazing word of comfort from God, talking about his strength, talking about his word, talking about his presence. And finally, leading us to talk about his salvation as a comfort. Isaiah 40, again, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now you might wonder, when he says double for all her sins, that sounds like he's punishing her twice. That doesn't sound like salvation. But that would be a misunderstanding. The Hebrew is a little bit weird to translate, but what if you were to look at any kind of major commentary, they're going to say the same thing. This double payment is not a double payment for sin on our behalf, but it is showing God's forgiveness. That more than double has been done to forgive God's people of their sins. And this forgiveness ultimately points us forward to Jesus. Believe it or not, John the Baptist knew about this word of forgiveness, and he knew about Isaiah 40. And in all four Gospels, we see John the Baptist quoting this passage in particular. Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, say this this is what he's quoting a voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight the highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist pointing forward to Jesus is telling them of the comfort that is about to come because God ultimately comforts his people by saving them. The book of Isaiah speaks about God's salvation in the Messiah everywhere, and we'll especially see that in the next few weeks. But there is no greater comfort than knowing that you have been made right with God, that he has forgiven you of your sin. Temporal comfort are good, um, and, and God provides those things. But more importantly, Eternal and divine comfort and forgiveness are primary. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26 explain how Jesus brought eternal comfort and salvation to all of God's people, both in the Old Testament and in the New. It says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And then catch this. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ultimately, God satisfies his promise from Isaiah chapter 40 in Jesus. If you've ever wondered, how are the people of the Old Testament saved? Same way we in the New Testament are saved. They had faith that God was mighty to save, and they trusted as much as they knew of God in their salvation, with as much as they knew of themselves. Now, you might ask, though, some of us might have the mindset, well, okay, but Jesus didn't die till later, so how does salvation, how does all that math work out? Here's the easiest way to think about it. Think about a credit card. And I know if some of you are Dave Ramsey people, this may not make as much sense, but think about a credit card. Um, when I walk into a store, and let's say I'm buying some groceries, and I, you know, I go up and I swipe my credit card, you know, it says approved, and I walk out. In a real sense, no money has left my bank account yet. Now, at first, that might feel like, well, are you stealing? You know, because no money has left my bank account yet. The only reason the police are not coming and tackling me and taking away those groceries I got is because when I swipe that credit card, it is a promise of future payment in full. And the store knows, because hopefully the the lender, the bank that's behind my card is trustworthy, they know that they will receive the full payment at a future date. That's exactly what happens with Jesus at the cross. So you, you think about it, In the Old Testament God's people as they were sinning those sacrifices you know of blood and bulls and goats they didn't actually atone for anything they were pointing forward to Jesus they were telling them of of the grievousness of sin but ultimately Jesus paid the full price for all sin at the cross and not just past sin but for all future sin which means Jesus death is sufficient to save you from every sin you've ever committed And every sin you are going to commit, or can't even imagine committing, but will come up in your life. His death is sufficient for that. Believe it or not. And Jesus, for our perspective, we can even say in, in this poignant way, Jesus knew every sin you and I would ever commit, and he still chose to die for you. God has shown his righteousness in saving his people by paying the full price for their sin At the cross, we can have peace with God. The thing that separates us from intimacy with God, presence with God, our sin, has been taken care of in Jesus. Think about how amazing that is. Hebrews 10 speaks of Jesus' amazing salvation as a comfort in this way. It says, starting in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament way of things. faithful. God has said if you would put your faith in Him, Jesus has paid for all of your sin at the cross. There is nothing that would ever separate you from God. And so the best and most lasting comfort you can ever have from God is in His salvation for you. And speaking of confessions, I think one of the best kind of explanations of the comfort of God's salvation comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. A bunch of old dead guys wrote this, but it's one of the most beautiful pictures of our comfort in God. It says the question is what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a single hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for the good of my salvation because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit. I am also assured of eternal life and I am made wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. God's strength, his word, uh, his presence and his salvation are a comfort to us we need to rest in that we can rest in that and so here is what I want us to do is I want us to take about three to four minutes and I want us at our tables to talk about this before I read one final passage of scripture to close where do you need God's comfort in your life right now we've talked about the fact that God can comfort us but now let's make it personal where do you need God's comfort in your life right now is it anxiety over a job is it depression that you, that you are just struggling to work your way through? Is it an addiction to pornography or gossip or pride or food or something like that? Or maybe you just need, if you're honest, God's eternal comfort because you have never put your faith in Jesus. Where do you need God's comfort in your life right now? Talk about that at your table. Share with, what you, with people what, what you're comfortable with. And then I'm going to read one final passage of scripture to close us out. Alright, For the sake of time, we're going to bring it back in. And um, I'd encourage you, I realize that's not near enough time. So as you go out to eat afterwards, if you're going to partake in that, share more stories of God's strength in your life, ways you need His comfort, and think about ways in which uh, you've seen God's comfort in your own life. Um, I want us to close with this, though. Um, we talked earlier about the way God's Word comforts us. And I think one of the best summaries of what we talked about tonight, God's comfort in his strength and in his word, and in his presence and in his salvation, can be seen in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 39. And if you've been in 20 somethings very long, or you've taken a quip or anything like that, you've heard me read this passage a number of times. And it's it's not a coincidence. This for me, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's comfort. And I can't tell you how many times I have read this passage just when it feels like the world is falling down around me. It's been a deep comfort to me. And so with this, I want you to see God's comfort to us in His strength and in His Word and in His presence and His salvation as we close with this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God, we thank you that you are a big God, a just God, a holy God. And yet a God that is close and intimate and loving and tender and gracious. God, we thank you for the ways that you comfort us by your strength and by your word and by your presence and by your salvation. And so, God, as I pray over these friends tonight, as we've spent time in your word, God, I pray that they would feel a special sense of your comfort and your nearness tonight, no matter what they are going through. God, even more importantly, if they have never experienced your true comfort, they have never put their faith and their trust in you as mighty to save, they've never admitted their sin and their need to be reconciled to you, God, I pray that you would comfort them by your spirit and show them that if they would trust in you, that wall of division would be taken down forever. They would be made new. And so, God, we thank you for your comfort. We thank you for your salvation, your word, your presence, and your strength. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.